KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Monday, August 16th. Anti-mask protesters derail a Vista school board meeting. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. San Diego County public health officials reported 1,700 new COVID-19 cases last Friday. It was the highest single-day count the county has seen since last January. 31 additional people were hospitalized with two more sent to the ICU. Currently, the hospitalization rate is 51 times higher for those who are unvaccinated. In San Diego County, the cost of housing and rent has significantly increased. This has driven up the inflation rate, which is higher in San Diego when compared to the national average. Miro Kopik is the founder of Bottom Line Marketing and a business commentator for KPBS. He says home prices in San Diego, which are about double the national average, have likely peaked. But rental price increases show no signs of slowing down. Rents have been going up, and the scary thing about rents is that rents went up when there's a vacant apartment, an average of 18%. That also was a big driver for our inflation rate. Every year, pregnant leopard sharks flock by the hundreds to La Jolla shores. They're attracted to warm, shallow water with lots of squid to eat. Andrew Nosel is an environmental and ocean sciences professor at the University of San Diego. Now is a great time to get in the water with them. The calmer the water, usually the better the conditions are for snorkeling and kayaking. And usually we see more sharks than too when it's nice and calm. But don't try to touch them, he says. The leopard sharks will be in the area until December or as long as the water stays warm. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. There was high drama at a school board meeting in Vista last week. The Thursday meeting was shut down several times when protesters refused to wear masks inside. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne spoke to parents on Friday about what happened. If they do not wear their masks, we cannot continue the business of the board at this point in time. Vista School Board President Cipriano Vargas shut down the meeting several times because people refused to wear their masks. At this point in time, I'm going to reconvene the meeting. If members of the public are still not going to be wearing their masks, we will have to reconvene at another location. The public was moved to a different room when it was time for the public comment. Sharon McKeeman, the leader of the group Let Them Breathe, was there. She was not wearing a mask because she has a medical exemption. When it came to my time to speak, they let me come into the building, but then when I got to the chambers, they actually slammed uh, the door in my face. McKeeman was unable to give her comment. Let Them Breathe's legal advisor sent an email to the Vista School Board stating there is no mask mandate in place and saying the choice to remove members of the public from a public meeting violates the Brown Act. 
Last night was supposed to be a school board meeting. So we were supposed to be able to listen and watch what the school board's business was. And we were supposed to each have that allotted time on the microphone where nobody interrupts it, where there's no arguing. And that didn't happen. While Let Them Breathe has been campaigning against mask mandates, other parents are starting to organize a counter group supporting mask rules. Kristen Beer is starting one called Parents for PUSD for Poway Unified School District. Our goal is to let all of the other parents in the San Diego school system know that if they do not want our school districts to apply for waivers to the mask mandate, they're not alone. There are lots of us. There are lots of parents who are okay sending our kids masked. Beer says mask choice will create more chaos for the school and teachers. If they're enforcing the same rule for everyone, children understand that that's the rule. We all um, follow the same rule. That's what elementary school is kind of all about. That's kind of almost the most important thing you can teach an elementary school child is to follow rules that they don't like because it's the right thing to do. She said the group's goal is to balance out the noise that has been heard from opposing groups. All we've seen so far are this vocal minority who seem to have the time and the money for protests and lawsuits and organized disruptions of school board meetings. And that reporting was from KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne. A week after the San Diego County Sheriff's Department released an edited video of a deputy supposedly overdosing on fentanyl, they released the unedited body cam video. KPBS's John Carroll says the longer videos still leave unanswered questions. After packaging up some fentanyl taken from a suspect's vehicle, Deputy David Five Eye suddenly stiffens and falls back. Almost immediately, his training officer, Deputy Scott Crane, administers naloxone given to people who have OD'd on opioids. Hey, dude. Wake up. Hey, buddy. I'm going to know Yes, code cover. The blowback came within hours. Medical professionals across the country saying what the video showed was not an example of overdosing on fentanyl, lashing out at the sheriff's department for releasing a video many said misportrayed a situation that plays out with deadly consequences across this country every day. I think it's helpful to release the full version so that people can see as much as you can see from a body cam. Dr. Carla Marienfeld is the medical director of UC San Diego's Addiction Recovery and Treatment Program. She has not seen the unedited version of the video yet. With what she has seen, she says she doesn't feel comfortable saying what happened to Deputy Five Eye was an overdose. Marienfeld says she's more concerned about the unintended message the video could send. I think the most important message is that people shouldn't be afraid of incidental exposure to fentanyl in a limited way like this to where they would not act to help someone who might be overdosing. One thing that is new from the unedited version comes when Deputy Five Eye is answering questions from a paramedic. Any medical history that you know about? Probably my sixth or seventh time I fall on my head. <laughs> that leads to an obvious question as to whether Deputy Five Eye has a history of fainting. 
and if that's what happened here. Dr. Marienfeld says, hard to tell. I think that you want to take into consideration the fact that the patient may have had previous head injuries and whether or not some of what he was presenting with currently was related to him hitting his head in any way. Then there's the question of a toxicology test. The sheriff's department now says one was not done at the hospital. Dr. Marienfeld says that's not unusual. In the emergency room, you're trying to be as efficient as possible in helping somebody. In that situation where the story was consistent with a fentanyl exposure, it wouldn't necessarily make sense to check to see if there was fentanyl in his system particularly if the story you heard as the physician was that the patient responded to naloxone. And that reporting from KPBS's John Carroll, KPBS reached out to the sheriff's department for clarification, but was told they weren't doing any interviews at the time. Californians with developmental disabilities are at a high risk of death from COVID-19. Advocates say caregivers who work with this population should be required to get vaccinated. CAP Radio's Sammy Kaola has more. People with disabilities and their loved ones are worried about catching the highly contagious Delta variant. Judy Mark is the president of Disability Voices United. We are starting to hear stories now every single day of people who are vaccinated, who have developmental disabilities, who are getting breakthrough cases that they've gotten from people who work in their homes. Earlier this month, Governor Gavin Newsom announced health workers in hospitals, nursing homes, and other settings will be required to get a vaccine. But home caregivers are not included in the mandate. Rick Wood relies on several caregivers to help his developmentally disabled son in Mammoth Lakes. After a recent COVID scare related to one of those workers, Wood asked all of them to get vaccinated. Care providers who come into the home provide intimate care, um, such as feeding, dressing, bathing, and the like. They are no different from uh, healthcare workers who are performing similar duties and providing similar services in hospitals and medical facilities. The state is also requiring teachers and school staff to be fully vaccinated or get regularly tested. Officials have not announced whether similar requirements will be extended to in-home caregivers. And that was CAP Radio's Sammy Kaola. Coming up on the podcast... The 4.9 million don't get their choice as governor. The 1.8 million do. That, we believe, violates the Constitution and the precept of one person, one vote. We'll hear a legal scholar's view on why the recall election could be struck down as unconstitutional. That's next, just after the break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. In about a month from now, on September 14th, California will hold a recall election for Governor Gavin Newsom. But some law scholars say the process is not constitutional because voters won't have an equal say in the election's outcome. Erwin Chemerinsky is the dean of UC Berkeley's School of Law. He recently wrote an editorial addressing the recall election in the New York Times. And he spoke with CAP Radio's Randall White about the issue. Here's that interview. So the first paragraph of your Times piece says, 
The most basic principles of democracy are that the candidate who gets the most votes is elected and that every voter gets an equal say in an election's outcome. What do you believe the upcoming recall election violates with those principles? On September 14th, voters will face two questions on the ballot. One is, should Gavin Newsom be recalled? And the second is, if he's recalled, which of the following candidates should be governor? The first question is decided by a majority vote. And if Gavin Newsom is removed from office, then the candidate who gets the most votes, even though not plurality, becomes the governor. So the example we give in the piece is, imagine 10 million people vote and 4.9 million or 49% want Gavin Newsom to be governor. He's removed. But then imagine on the second vote that no candidate gets more than, say, 18%, which were the leading candidates polling now. That person would get 1.8 million votes. So 4.9 million in my hypothetical would want Gavin Newsom. 1.8 million would want whoever gets the most votes. The 4.9 million don't get their choice as governor. The 1.8 million do. That, we believe, violates the Constitution in the precept of one person, one vote. In 2003, the only time a governor was successfully recalled in California history, the system worked and was constitutional in that case because of how the votes fell? That's exactly right. In that instance, Arnold Schwarzenegger got more votes than those who wanted Gray Davis to stay in office. So under our analysis, that would be constitutional. Of course, that could happen here. It is theoretically possible that some candidate on the second vote could end up with more votes than those who want Gavin Newsom. But no polling suggests that's remotely possible. Either Newsom is going to win and stay in office, or if he's voted out, some Republican candidate with far fewer votes is going to end up as governor. Dean Chemerinsky, why was this not taken up during, say, the process to gather signatures or, or earlier than one month out? I don't have an answer to that question. Until my colleague and I were discussing this, we had not heard anyone raise this concern with regard to one person, one vote. If the scenario plays out the way that you described, and, and like you said, polling does indicate that, um, is there a chance that the Supreme Court could step in? Now, you do argue that the Supreme Court has weighed in on this issue twice and does side with your point of view. The Supreme Court repeatedly, in fact, more than just twice, has held that equal protection requires that every person's vote count the same. That's the principle, one person, one vote. It was initially articulated in those cases in the 1960s, but has been consistently reaffirmed since. If someone brings a lawsuit, either now or if this happens after the election, I would imagine the courts would get involved. That was Aaron Chemerinsky, the dean of UC Berkeley School of Law. He was speaking with CAP Radio's Randall White. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio or check out the Midday Edition podcast. You can also watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. And as always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert. Thanks for listening and have a great day.
KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com.